0: Welcome back to the show, friends. It is my honor today to be joined by Doctor John Barton. How are you, sir? I'm good, thank you, Luke. It's good to join you. Now, uh, my listeners know your wife. Like y- your wife has been on the podcast a few times, and uh, so you have some big shoes to fill as you have to follow up the you know the, the Sarah Barton cloud. So good luck.
1: Well, that's a, that's okay. I've have spent much of the last thirty years being Sarah Barton's husband, and I'm good with that. So that's that's all good.
0: I, I, there are definitely a lot worse things to be called. So uh, you know you're 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 in good standing right there. Uh, there's not right. a I haven't had a ton of husband wife guests on the podcast. I've been doing this for over five hundred episodes now, and I've had a few. What is it like to, I mean, you're in somewhat different lanes, but you're, I mean, you you both write books, you both, you know, do church theology work. What is it like to have husband, wife, both having vocations that are pretty similar to each other?
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's certainly been a very unique experience. I mean, even going all the way back to, you know, when we lived in Uganda, uh, Mm -hmm. we were part of a mission team. Uh, we really shared that, you know, we were collaborators and we were partners in that uh, work as well. Then we came back to the United States and we both worked at Rochester University in Michigan mm-hmm. for 12 years. And she was the campus minister and I was a professor, but we both taught classes and kind of overlapped and now at Pepperdine. And so it's it's yeah. a very unusual situation. Our, our lives, it's, it's hard to draw borders. Um, sometimes I, I think one of the challenges we have is. Uh, how do we how do we have a life uh, a family life and a marriage that's separated from our jobs and our our ministries and there isn't much line between work and home? Uh, but that's also good. I mean, it's it's uh, we we share it together. We appreciate it. We we sharpen each other. We make each other better. Yeah. Um,
0: it's, it's a good thing. Do you guys have any practices or like rules of life for how you try to bifurcate the work home divide? I mean, do you guys have anything that works for y'all?
1: Netflix. Yeah, I I don't know. (laughs) Not anything deeply spiritual, or okay, fair uh, enough. Or or, or let me say, not anything that's worked very well. Um, But but uh, but that's okay. I mean, and some of it is. I mean, we're 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 that's something unique to our relationship, as we have so many shared interests and so many shared concerns things that we care about in our work life as well as our home life that it 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 kind of becomes a uh kind of a seamless thing uh, it certainly comes with
0: its challenges but it sure, it's sure. it's worked well for us yeah well when I think about your your home life situation, I know that I've done at least one podcast where Sarah has been set up on the like the call like this, and the backdrop is a pretty amazing scenic view that you get on Pepperdine's campus where you guys uh, work and live. So, I mean, you're not going to get a whole lot of sympathy for how tough it is when that's kind of like the view you live with.
1: Yeah, well, I understand that. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I
0: don't apologize
1: for it, but I understand it.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, okay, one of the things that... I get a lot of love for is people find out I have a podcast and one of the things they go, well, like who've you had on? And one of the names that I always go to that people, no matter how connected you are to the work that y- you know, you do uh, as, you know, religion professor, or I do as a preacher, you know, writer, like those things are kind of secondary. Cause there's one name I get to drop that I have on the podcast because of you. And of course it's the Rain Wilson name where everyone's like, uh-huh. Oh my goodness. Uh-huh. You had Dwight from the office on the podcast. And that happened because of you i mean sarah was uh the person who was you know reaching out to me and she said hey do you want to talk, talk to talk to rain at, at uh you know pepperdine a couple of years ago and so there's a lot of love for rain wilson people love him and y- you and him have become friends oh, uh, one of the early stories in the book you uh, have have his name in the dedications because he's he's a friend of yours that you've developed because of your interfaith work with uh, the baha'i community there in the los angeles area is that is that correct that's how you met him right
1: that is. Yeah, that is correct. Of course, I live in the Los Angeles area. So, you know, we we out here, we hang out with rock stars and celebrities all the time. I, I don't know. That's just part of life. <laughs> um, no, that's that's I'm joking. It's kind of like you live in Austin, Texas. Don't you hang out with Willie Nelson? I, I, don't, yeah. I don't know. But he and Matthew but, yeah, McConaughey no, and I
0: get together. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Rain is, has become a good friend uh, and not. Not because of his. I mean, I'm I'm a great fan of The Office, and it's actually a little bit odd for me now to watch The Office, knowing Rain and watching Dwight Schrute. And it's a little bit of cognitive dissonance. But our friendship is really based on uh, other things, Um, more than him being an actor or comedian. He's a he's a good friend. He is a very faithful person. He cares a lot about faith and and uh, philanthropy. Uh, very dedicated to the Baha'i religion, which a lot of people don't know. As you said, uh, a lot of people don't even know what the Baha'i religion is, but uh, mm-hmm. very, uh, very committed member. And um, uh, and he's a he's a fellow peace builder. He he, he mm-hmm. cares about interfaith and interreligious uh, interactions. And that's what my book is about as well. So we've we've really struck up a, a friendship. And it doesn't help me either. As a professor at Pepperdine, I get some uh, some kudos with my students for bringing them to class every once in a while. So that's a, that's yeah. a good
0: thing. You get a lot of street cred, but I'll part. tell you something. You, you have a, a student a recently who was uh, from Westover, uh, the church I'm a part of here in Austin. And I happened, she was back visiting from from Pepperdine and somehow your name got brought up and she talked about how much she loved your class. And this is before I think uh, she knew that you and I, I don't think she even knew that you and I were going to talk or that we're friends. So it, your students like you anyway. But then when you throw a yeah. Wilson on top of that, I mean, that's, that's, you yeah, know, a it lot of love. doesn't hurt. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, one of the things that, you know, people always ask me about like my interactions with rain and it was very brief. You know, we probably talked for 20 minutes before the podcast and he, he's just like any other like stage person where the person you see on stage is like a bigger over the top version, but you know, behind the scenes, just like a normal, normal person. And I don't know if that's how he always is, but it sure seemed like that to my experience with him.
1: Yeah. Uh, he's, he's, he's a great genuine guy. I mean, he's a little quirky, um, and he, he knows how to use that and leverage that into his characters. Um, but he's he's just the best of the best.
0: Yeah, that's great. And again, at the heart of that is not uh shared love for the office, but a shared love for interfaith work. And... Uh, So I'm very excited. The new book, Better Religion, uh, came out a couple months ago, and uh, I'm very excited for this conversation because I think the angle you're having on on what you're helping us see as what these sort of interfaith dialogues can look like, I think, is really helpful. Because uh, I don't know what your early introductions to interfaith religion religious conversations look like, but for many, it's just. I'm going to yell at you and tell you why you're wrong and I'm right. And it just becomes a stalemate right there. Do you think many people have that as like the foundational understanding of, okay, this is how people from, you know, Islam and Christianity talk to each other. Is that a fair projection?
1: Uh, it certainly is a lot of people's experience or what they've been exposed yeah. to or what they assume. So, so yeah, in that sense. Um, and I, I, my experience has been, I've been privileged to have a lot of experiences of interactions with people from other religious traditions. And uh, that I've been, I mean, the language I would use is I've been blessed um, by deep friendships and by uh, experiences that are very different than that. And so, Mm. you know, part of what I see is part of my vocational mission right now is to give uh, uh, witness to different kinds of interfaith interactions. Um, And I would even say, I mean, and you use the word, and this is, this is common language. Uh, the term interfaith dialogue, I would even say that what I'm interested in is something much more than just dialogue. If, if dialogue means we just get together and we talk and we talk at each other and we try to understand or we try to persuade each other of something, I mean, there is there is room for that and there's space for that. But um, but my book is about actually something much deeper and richer. It's, it's about friendships. It's about Collaborations—it's about working together uh,
0: for mm-hmm. for
1: uh, for things that we all care about.
0: Yeah. Before we maybe get more into the the substantive part of the book, one of the things you say early on in the book is that the book is your attempt to chronicle your own journey to make it explicit and take responsibility for what you've practiced and learned and put it all out there for for wider consideration. So this isn't just some intellectual exercise, but this has been your own experience. And so maybe. Would you mind sharing a little bit about like the beginning of how you've moved just from dialogue or conversations to friendship? How how did that experience blossom in your life?
1: Yeah, I appreciate that that question. So um, I think I would I mean, where I would have to start is with our experiences in East Africa. So as we mentioned just a few minutes ago, Sarah and I were part of a mission team and we lived in East Africa um, from 1994 to 2002. And uh, as part of that, you know, we, we, we learned a language. We did all the things that you, you associate with mission work. We did church planting. Uh, we worked in different villages, uh, you know, started schools and all kinds of things. Um, when I went over and, and we moved there when we were just, you know, in our 20s. And so we were young people, hmm. idealistic, you know, full of energy Wanting to make a difference in the world, wanting to make a difference, the language that we would have used, wanting to make a difference in the kingdom of God, the language I still use. Um, But I went with a certain amount of naivete, um, kind of this idea that uh, we're going over there to plant churches, to to lead Bible studies, to teach people about God. And when we got there, we found, of course, I mean, it sounds almost cliche now to say it, but at the time, we it was an experience to go there and find an entire world of religion uh, that I was not anticipating, and I and some of that certainly is African traditional religion. I mean, you have indigenous perspectives, practices, faiths uh, that are that are pervasive, uh, and we and we came across that and and um, you know, interacted with people in that world all the time. But what I didn't realize is how much the world religions would I now teach uh, in mm-hmm. college classes. The world religions were were all through East Africa. And so huge numbers of Muslims that we interacted with all the time. Baha'is, I mean, we, we talked about Rain being a Baha'i. I had never heard of the Baha'i faith before I moved to East Africa. Um, but Uganda is actually one of the African uh centers of gravity for the Baha'i faith. So a lot of Baha'is there, a lot of Hindus, people from the Indian subcontinent that had come to East Africa over the last 200 years or so, a lot of Jains, Sikhs, you know, all all these different, even some Jews, uh, Jewish communities in East Africa. So as a young Christian missionary... First of all, I had to start figuring out, okay, what does our life and work mean in interaction and dialogue and friendship with all these different groups? And uh, then when we were working in villages, being confronted with some of the challenges of poverty and some of the social challenges there and some of the uh, ethnic challenges, what does it mean to interact with Muslims and and Hindus and, and, and so forth? when you're trying to also address or understand certain social problems or development problems. And so that was the beginning of it. I guess the the quick answer is my life was thrown into this context where I had to figure that out intellectually. I had to figure it out
0: spiritually.
1: I had to figure it out in terms of our work. And that started my journey, which then took on academic forms later.
0: Gotcha. So, so you get there as in your words, uh an idealistic, naive 20-something who's going there to start churches to teach people about religion, you find out there's a whole lot of religion that's going on, even if it's not the religion that you and I are part of, uh, even if it's not uh, people that are just describing what they're doing as the kingdom of God's work, but it's something completely different. And so you have to figure this out. When you say you had to figure it out, what are things that helped you figure it out? What what were were the tools or resources that help you process what you were having to experience in real time?
1: Yeah. Uh, well, one thing, I mean, I, I think it's right. You repeated my own words. I did go over as naive and, and uh, idealistic. Um, I guess everyone is when they're 25. And yet sure. I also was given, you know, I, I was given some tools. Our team was given some tools um, by some mentors that we had at places like Harding University that sent us in with a, with a framework that said go in as question askers and as learners more than as experts and as teachers. And so we, we were given that kind of framework to begin with, and I, I really value that, and I am very grateful for that. So when we confronted a lot of these realities, and we, I mean, I'm talking about the religious realities we, we confronted, we, we experienced a lot of other cultural realities, the realities of poverty, all, all kinds of things. But in all of those, we at least tried. We didn't do it perfectly, but we at least tried to respond by being learners. By asking mm-hmm. questions, by seeing what there was there for us to um, to know or to learn or, or to you know w- with humility, and so I you know that was I think that was the primary tool. And then I would just say one other thing that 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 kind of evolved from that was simple friendships. I mean, it, it's yeah. it's one thing to think about theology and think about all these big ideas and even things that I write now in this book. Um, uh, on an intellectual level or an abstract level. But a lot of it for me was just, I I became good friends with yeah. people that were in other religious traditions, living in lives that were shaped and framed by other religious convictions. And they were friends of mine. They I cared about them. They cared about me. We knew each other's kids. We We collaborated and worked together. And friendship kind of invites you to to grapple with those things as well so it it really Hmm. was much more of a personal way in than an intellectual one and and i would say you know to use the language that's uh, kind of a well-known phrase i would say all of that for me was a process of faith seeking understanding you know i I had my faith my faith was on a journey of trying to understand the world i was a part of and understand myself as well
0: hmm it's interesting how many people who are uh, very educated like yourself, uh, I've heard over the years talk about the central role that friendship has in bridging gaps and understanding whether it's race conversations or it's religious or, uh, discussions across religious barriers that at the end of the day, if you have friendship, you have something that you can build upon. And I've, I've heard the opposite where I've heard, um, this is a terrible story from Uh, someone who's ministering in a part of the country that, you know, racism has had a historically and even in the present, some pretty substantial uh, holds in the community where one person admitted uh, in, you know, the last couple of years that they had never had a meal as a white person with a person of color. And you go, how, how could, how does that even happen? But that's that sort of isolation, of course, leads and breeds the sort of divide, divisive and divisions that that we experience. So basic friendship is very formative and asking questions. I, as you were talking about how asking questions is an important skill, uh, I think back to a, a quote from the book where you say, uh, at the core of my argument is the following claim for religion's, quote, better to be possible, it requires a kind of interreligious peace building that honors and directly engages the unresolved and often unresolvable religious differences among us. So, it seems like asking questions is the first part of this, but to like engage with these sort of unresolvable conflicts, we have to be able to do that. Some of us would think, well, let's kind of ignore those things that are unable to be resolved. And let's talk about what we can. Why do you think it's so important to ask the questions and to engage directly with the unresolvable uh, differences?
1: Yeah, I, I I love that question because it really does. You're, you're right. That kind of gets at the heart of what I'm after. There is, there is this assumption that if we are going to interact peacefully with people from other you know religious communities that we need to focus on what we have in common and we need to kind of push to the edges or check at the door those those convictions that that create distance between us or disagreement yeah the problem with that is what that does is is it it assumes that we need to interact with with others people from other religious communities without bringing the deepest most important parts of ourselves to that to that conversation or to that friendship I mean, if you ask me to check at the door my convictions about who Jesus is, about the resurrection of Jesus, about the the difference that Jesus has made in my life, if you ask me to check that at the door because it might make someone else uncomfortable, well, then I come into the room without my whole self, in fact, without the very thing that I think shapes myself. And so, and, and the same is true for my Muslim friends. Uh, I'm, I'm using Islam as a, especially as an example. I, I've done a lot of interfaith activism through the years, but especially uh, between Muslim Christian communities, and I have a number of close friends that are Muslims. If you, if you ask one of my Muslim friends to check at the door their convictions about the importance of the revelation that is contained in the Quran and how that shapes their life, then you're asking them to come in as a half person at best. Yeah. And so if we're going to talk about interfaith peace, it seems to me we have to do it by assuming that we all bring our full selves to the table. And that that by itself means that we're going to have things in the room, things in the conversations, things in our relationship and interactions that are uncomfortable, um, that are irreconcilable. I mean that's the language that I use, and that we have to start from there.
0: I mean to to be very crass, it sounds like it's just like any other friendship. Like if you're going to be real friends with people, they're going to be things that you disagree upon. I mean, you've been married for 30 years, so I'm sure you and Sarah have everything in common. But I've been married almost 20 years, and my (laughs) wife and I, we have some differences, right? Like it seems like any relationship is going to have differences. And if you try to put those to the side, it's going to cause a relationship to struggle. So on this level, I really appreciate that. And sometimes I, maybe others, think of... Uh, religious friendships in the hope that, okay, we're all going to get on the same page. And, you know, I'm going to convince you to think the right thing, especially younger Luke thought that. But one of the things that you you write in the book is that, uh, here's the quote, that it invites us to imagine that the goal of peace building, not merely as toleration or the absence of hostility, but as a shared quest for mutual flourishing. Now, I hear flourishing, and it makes me think Miroslav Volf, who I know that uh, you're friends with. And he had a book called Flourishing that came out a couple years ago. I think it was on the podcast. We talked about it on the podcast with him. Um, So that's a shift in the focus for how we engage with these relationships. What do you think, the when the locus, the centerpiece, is flourishing, how does that change our interactions with each other across religious differences?
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, you know, you can come at that from a lot of different angles, obviously, uh, but you're right that, uh, you know, I think what God, if, you know, this is not a book, I'm trying to decide how to come at this, this is not a book of theology, uh, so I'm mm-hmm. not writing for a Christian audience to, to give the Christian take on these things, but, but what you're asking, I think about all the time because of who I am, right? Yeah. And so, yeah, yeah. you know, I would, I would say at least this, that I think God calls us. God wants peacemakers in the world. God yeah. calls us to be peacemakers. And when and when God, when Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, and when Paul says in Romans 12, as far as it depends on you, live at yeah. peace with everyone, um, you know, they're not just talking about uh, the coexistence bumper stickers. They're not just saying yeah, yeah. that we need to tolerate one another or live in each other's midst in ways that don't let open hostility um, break out. God is saying, "Be, uh, be the kind of people that seek and that promote deep, genuine, respectful relationships, friendships, collaborations, and to do so with the idea of not just toleration but collaboration for things that we all care about." So, some you know, again, we're, we're talking in academic terms, but some of the things that go back to Uganda for us is, you know, I remember. Working, You know, we, we started a nonprofit organization. It's in its third decade now uh, called Kibo Group. Wow. And Kibo, uh, and when I say we, I, I have the privilege of saying we, but really it's our Ugandan brothers and sisters that do all of the work on the ground. We get to partner with them and support them. But it's really them doing the work. But they work in villages every day. They're working in villages today that have Muslims and Christians and indigenous African uh, practitioners all trying to deal with things like a lack of clean water or yeah. or, uh, or whatever it might be, a lack of food or some hygiene issues in the, in the community. And they're trying to figure out how to work together, how to be themselves in full conviction and commitment not to compromise their faith commitments, but to love one another and to work across those lines of difference in order that all of their children can live healthy lives. Mm-hmm. And that's just one example of what I have in mind here of, of uh, what God calls us to. When we talk about peacemaking, it's not just being nice to each other. It's not just being polite. It's not just tolerating one another. It's trying to figure out how to live together in significant ways where we love and engage and collaborate. Uh, and when we do that, we will all benefit. There will there will, mm-hmm. there will be mutual flourishing that will happen there.
0: And so when you're describing flourishing, obviously uh, uh, the Kibo group, like bringing resources to uh, parts of the world that unfortunately are under-resourced, th- that obviously looks like flourishing for that community. How do you think that also because it's not just them that are experiencing the flourishing. There's some sort of level of flourishing that those who are, you know, quote unquote, giving are also experiencing as well. Could you help us maybe with what you mean by the word flourishing in that context?
1: Yeah, well, if you mean like uh, we, as some of the American partners and American supporters of a work like Kibo, um, I mean, without, without question. I mean, I've been involved in uh, church work and development work in East Africa for 30 years. And, you know, it's always hard to, uh, you know, I would have to say I've benefited and I've grown and I've been stretched and I've been blessed. I hope that I have blessed others even to the fraction, uh, uh of a level that they've blessed me. Um, mm-hmm. there's just something about, um, uh, friendship and love and, and becoming more human and, and yeah. helping those in need, and being helped by those uh, when you're in need, that just makes us all more human. I think, it, you know, to put it in Christian language, I think that's how God created us to be. God created yeah. us to be in community with one another, and when we when we work together in community and we work for things that you know Jesus cared about, a life lived abundantly, uh, then we are blessed on multiple levels, and that certainly cuts in all
0: directions. Yeah. So, th- so there's flourishing. There's there's peace. Uh, peacemakers, obviously, Jesus is pretty clear, blessed are those who are peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. So there's this call to bring peace in the world. Uh, obviously, sometimes people look at religion and go, yeah, I don't think y'all are actually bringing much peace. But you actually have uh, a section in the book that's entitled, uh, As Goes Religion, So Goes the World, where— I don't think much of the world sees the centrality of religious, r- religion's role in the world. Uh, y- you discredit some of the statements which seems to indicate in the world that religion is diminishing. You actually say that that's not the case. Maybe you could unpack—this uh, is a two-part question—one, the, the claim that religion isn't diminishing, and then secondly, how religion as it continues to expand and grow and to be present like, actually impacts the world in such a way that as religion goes, so, th- so does the world
1: yeah yeah so i mean there is this common assumption and it's it's more common in places like the united states where we we see churches uh church membership seems to be declining you go to europe and you go into these old cathedrals that are empty and um and that's a problem i mean mosques are are finding uh, declining membership uh, in some places and synagogues and other things and that kind of feeds this narrative the secularization narrative that yeah. religion is slowly declining, and it's actually becoming, this, the secularization um, thesis would say that religion is becoming an endangered species across the world. Mm-hmm. Um, that as, as, as societies modernize, as they become more industrialized, more technologically advanced, more diverse, that, uh, that religions decline. They decline mm-hmm. in relevance, they decline in numbers, they decline in impact. And that's still a very common assumption, but you're right that, and it's not just me being unique. In fact, you, you mentioned Miroslav Wolf. I, I, I'm drawing on him and a lot of other people to say that's just not what's happening in the world. Um, it, it's easy to think that in some portions of our world, but the fact is that today across the world, religions are growing in sheer numbers and they're growing in relative percentages. The major traditions, almost all of the major traditions, uh, are growing in sheer numbers and relative percentages. And there are new religious movements being born all the time, young religions like the Baha'i religion. But The Baha'i religion is one of the fastest-growing religious communities in the world right now, and it's the second most geographically widespread religion on Earth, second only to Christianity. So the Baha'i religion has only been around for 160 years, and it is literally in every corner of this planet. And that's just one example, but, but Sarah's okay. Mount. Yeah, go ahead.
0: Right, let me just jump in. So Christianity in the West, uh, you know, especially like our move of the churches of Christ, uh, the numbers are diminishing pretty substantially. The, the numbers are not, um, auspicious to say the least for where we're going to be in 30 years. And compared to where we were 20 years ago, there's a substantial decline. I think ever since the eighties, the, the churches of Christ have been in a, a slow steady decline, uh, in light of those numbers, it's hard for some of us to think that actually even Christianity, which yep. probably is the world's largest religion, is actually growing. Can you help us see how that's the case when, like, maybe front and center doesn't look like that to be the case?
1: Yeah, it certainly doesn't look like that to be the case when when you're when you're looking in those contexts. You're right, um, but religion is. I mean, statistically, and there this is irrefutable uh, uh, data that statistically across the world. Religion is the large or Christianity is the re- largest religion in the world over, you know, almost two and a half billion people are Christians, 30 percent of the world's population. And it uh-huh. is growing significantly across the world in various ways. And so uh, it's kind of some specific answers to your question. If we just look at what's happening with religion in the United States, we're also missing the global yep. picture of that. Um, Christianity is growing in huge leaps and bounds on the African continent. Christianity. It, uh, I mean, it, the Africa has been called kind of the center of gravity for global Christianity mm-hmm. now, and it's growing very, very quickly. More recent evidence has even shown that uh, a country like the country of China may have the most Christians of any other country on the planet by the by the end of the century, um, and that's not a, a well known. Uh, statistic yeah. necessarily, but China, the most you know, the most populous nation on earth, Christianity is absolutely exploding there. You also have some evidence of some reviving forms of Christianity, even in secular Europe uh, and in the United States, uh, but not in some of the old standard institutional forms. And so you have non-institutional forms of Christianity that are starting to surface and take shape. We don't know exactly how all that will play out. Uh, projections are very, very difficult, but you have you have broad growth going on in a lot of different uh, corners
0: like that. Yeah, that, that's fascinating. It's, it's probably a, a very good reminder for some of us in the West who think if Christianity in America doesn't look like it used to mean, that means that the rest of the world also is having a similar experience, which clearly uh, many have stated what you've said, that you know just the center of Christianity is moved to a place that uh, we aren't located in. And so that's a big part of our perspective being somewhat short-sighted. So the idea that religion is diminishing probably isn't something that can hold up statistically uh, for those actually who do the the full research around the world. So the claim about as goes religion, so goes the world is an interesting claim. Many would critique, you know, Christianity or religion. Uh, I saw a stat that um, Scott Saul's a pastor in Nashville, first president of Nashville. He, he, he posted this, that 70% of humanitarian giving actually came from Christianity in America, where you know, you can look at his Twitter feed if you want a stat. But the idea that that Christianity actually is has a huge role in dealing with poverty and other issues like that um, is that kind of part of the argument about as religion goes, so does the world. Uh,
1: that's part of it. Yeah, that's part of it. Um, it's also part of the argument is just that um, it's also a reality that religions are not only growing in numbers and statistics. We're also in a time period, the 21st century is a time where religions, all religious traditions, not just Christianity, are growing also in assertiveness, um, Mm -hmm. uh, political assertiveness. Um, And that can be good or bad, by the way. Uh, That can go either way. Um, But that's why I say, you know, what, what the world needs is the world needs better religion, because if religions are going to be bigger and more assertive, then we, we need them to be assertive in ways that are peaceful, that are collaborative. Mm. Um, and, uh, and so religion will just continue to have a growing impact on the way that this on the way that this century turns out. Um, yeah. and, and that's where the title of the book comes in by the way. I mean religion's going to have a major impact on the 21st century for better or for worse. And so mm-hmm. how do we imagine you, you look at the news, you see what the worst looks like. How do we imagine what religion's impact might be for the better? Yeah,
0: that's a great question. One of the reasons that some don't see religion as making the world better is because you see the hostility between religious groups that have exclusive claims that disagree with each other. And I hear your message is not trying to put less than your full self at the table when these friendships and relationships happen but you want to bring the entirety of that how do we do that in a way that our mutually exclusive claims don't conclude and end any sort of interaction
1: right well so part of what i'm critiquing or let me say part of what i'm challenging in this book is the assumption that um that religious diversity or that religious differences. And remember when we, as you said, when we're talking about religious differences, we're talking about differences on things of ultimate importance in people's lives. Yeah. Um, But the assumption that religious differences inevitably lead to hostility uh, or distance. And I'm challenging that. And that's, that's, uh, that's, that's counterintuitive. I mean, it's, uh, I'm saying that actually our religious differences may have within them uh, certain resources that actually allow us to collaborate with one another, and so mm-hmm. the, I, I think. Let me answer your question, and this this is you, you, I'm sure you saw this in the book. Let me ask, answer your question by sharing one metaphor and then one historical example that I think Get, gets at, at it at kind of what I'm what I'm trying yeah, what I'm trying to to show here. And the metaphor is the metaphor of a bridge. Uh, I mean, we talk about bridge building, uh, but just think about the, the, the physical metaphor, a simple metaphor of a physical bridge. What is a bridge? Well, a bridge is something that stretches over an otherwise impassable distance, right? A chasm, yeah. whether it's created by a river or a ravine or a highway, and it connects opposite shores. And it does so, a bridge does that by virtue of independent foundations on each shore. And mm-hmm. so you have these independent foundations on different shores that make it possible for the girders and the beams to stretch across and connect in the middle. And so I'm imagining something analogous for interreligious peace building. Not that we just all come together and agree and, and all have confined common ground on everything, but rather that we have different traditions on different Theological and philosophical shores, and we have these different foundations that come from our different religions that will be as different from one another as the shores on which they sit, and yet those foundations are the very things that make the bridge possible for our interactions. So that's the central metaphor.
0: Hmm.
1: Yeah, here's here's a central historical example uh, that I that I give early on in the book, and the the example, and this is what this is what shows the the uh, you might say the implications the social implications of this the example is that of the abolition of the of the african slave trade or the transatlantic slave trade Um, we know that story we know many parts of it very well by by the year 1800 uh, the african slave trade was the largest forced migration in human history 10 to 12 million people ripped from their homes evil on a massive scale as, as we know, by the way, Luke, often perpetrated by Christians, which shows the yeah. horrors that religion can produce uh, and support yes. as well. But in 1807, the African slave trade was banned in the British Parliament. And that's a long story. The, the, the fact that that legislation happened, that change happened in 1807, was the result of many, many years of grassroots activism by women and men, most of whom we don't even know their names and many of whom had escaped enslavement themselves. But eventually, that built up or it bubbled up to the point that legislative change could happen. And that change in the British Parliament, there were several key players, and two of them that I name are William Wilberforce and Jeremy Bentham. Now, Christians like to highlight the William Wilberforce one for good reasons. He was a member of the British Parliament. He was an evangelical Christian. He was opposed, he was a hero opposed to slavery because he thought it was sinful to enslave other people created in the image of God. But one of his partners was a guy named Jeremy Bentham, who is a kind of a classic modern atheist. He was a staunch critic of religion. He thought all religion is superstitious, it holds back human progress. But he was opposed to the slave trade because it failed his ethical test of utilitarianism which is the you know the greatest good for the greatest number Mm -hmm. and so you had you had bentham and wilberforce opposed to one another on in terms of their worldview. never saw eye to eye in terms of the things they held to be most important but both of them had resources foundations to build on that helped Mm -hmm. them collaborate for uh helping overturn the the african slave trade one yeah. because of the neighbor love of Jesus and one because of an atheistic utilitarianism, irreconcilable worldviews, and yet they partnered uh, uh, for for this kind of work, and they partnered on a lot of other things too in their day and so that's that's what I'm trying to get us to imagine how can we imagine people from different worldviews different shores that can build bridges of collaboration
0: mm-hmm. so the the line in the book different. Religious traditions have independent and often mutually exclusive resources that make interreligious collaboration effective. And so, when you're talking about resources, you you mentioned just two resources that Wilberforce has: the you know, everyone created in the image of God do not you know they they don't deserve to be treated this way. Um, Bentham had the greatest good for the for the. Oh, what is the line? Uh, the greatest, greatest good, good for the greatest th- number. Yeah, yeah that, and so are, are you saying those are the resources that each of them brought to the table that enabled that sort of collaboration to happen?
1: Yeah, th- those are the resources that they were drawing on independently from one another that didn't agree with. You know, they were mutually exclusive in some ways. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But they allowed for collaboration in the middle. And part of what I claim is that and, and, you know, that's an interesting example because you have a religious person and an atheist working together. Mm. But all the major religious traditions have resources that invite in their better in their better forms that invite their practitioners into compassionate um, uh, uh, living, uh, compassionate Mm. interactions with others. So you talk about the you know, Hasid in the Jewish tradition, steadfast love, or the Muslim call to talif, which is you know, translated as, as mutual love in, in the Quran, or Christian agape love, or the Buddhist ideal of compassion, karuna. And there are a number of others. Those, those may not be compatible with one another, but they allow for compatibility to be built, for mm-hmm. a bridge
0: to be built. I appreciate you you riffing on a couple of those, because I was going to ask you that very question. Hey, give me some examples from the different religions. So uh, thank you for for uh, stepping over my question before I had to say it. Um, but I love that idea of let, let's put all these on the table so that we can see them and allow these mutually exclusive resources to bring us together. There's still going to be profound differences that exist. And like to use the bridge metaphor, so I'm, I'm building on agape and... Um, compassion is built on by my brother from a different religion. We're going to meet in the middle on that bridge. We're still going to maintain some drastic differences of things that are of first importance. Uh, you know, as people of, uh, of, of of the Jesus tradition, we believe that Christ died. That's a first importance for us. Some people might feel like, get on the bridge. Okay, there's part of my my religion I'm going to bring. You're going to bring part of yours, but I feel like I'm having to leave some of mine back on the mainland. How would you help them deal with that sort of cognitive dissonance of going, yeah, but you need to tell them that without Jesus, they're going to, you know, die and burn in hell. Like, how would you help them process that sort of very baseline impulse that many have had throughout the years?
1: Yeah. So what you're asking, and this is this comes up in interfaith work a lot, is what role I mean, you're asking more than this. But one of the questions you're asking is, where does proselytization come into this? Sure. Um, I mean, I've been in interfaith interactions uh, with all kinds of people. You know, the, the, the Muslim religion has a, a call for them to be witnesses to the truth of the Quran. Yeah. Uh, it's not exactly the Great Commission, but it has forms of that. The Buddhist religion, actually, the Buddha himself actually gave a form of the Great. Commission to his first five disciples uh, of the Buddhist Dharma, um, told them to go out and tell the world. And so the, not all religions are missionary religions necessarily, but several of the big ones are, and certainly yeah. the Christian faith has the has the, the Great Commission. Um, yet yeah, so I mean, I think my best answer to that is just to, to say, you know, I'm not sure, but Entering into those spaces and those friendships and those collaborations of love and compassion with other people to to talk and to collaborate about things we care about, um, it invites us into the gray area of that and to and into the discomfort of that and that's the right place to be I mean I, I almost want to say, so for Jesus followers, what's our alternative? To, to pull back into uh, just our own communities, only hang out with people that already agree with us, or I mean, I mean, certainly that's not what Jesus calls us to, or to have the only, you know, the other idea would be to ha- the only interactions we have with anyone in the world is trying to uh, convert them or change them or or whatever it might be, even if we do service work it's always kind of a a carrot that we dangle in front of them trying to pull them in so we can so we can close the deal if you will and Mm -hmm. i just think that uh we are called to something we're called to be witnesses to the christ and um that is done in many many different ways and uh and we need to do it in multiple ways and then let god you know the red the rest is above our pay grade in some ways we we act as a as a as a witness to the christ with words and with actions and then we continue to love and trust and and uh create peace with people as far as it depends on us and then see what happens i do the one thing i would add to that is i am convinced and of course i come at this as a missionary right i mean my 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 life as a church planter and a discipler i mean that's part of my story but I, I am convinced that the Great Commission must always be guided and govern, governed by the Great Commandment. And yep. so whatever we mean by the Great Commission, it, it must be governed by love of neighbor um, and and everything that, that, that calls us to, and the golden rule. I mean, Matthew seven twelve says, in everything, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Well, the in everything is pretty comprehensive and includes... The Great Commission. So, yeah, whatever so. it means, uh, we we when we do our Great Commission work, we have to do it in a way that is non coercive, that is that is respectful, that is that doesn't do it in a way that we wouldn't want it done to us. That is that is willing to listen, that is humble, because that's how we would want it responded. So, the Great Commission must be governed by the Golden Rule and by the, the Great Commandment.
0: Oh, That's good. I really like that a lot. I think it was Wolf who talked about in a pluralistic society, we're all staking our claim for what the good life is or what brings flourishing. And you have different groups that are competing for this is our vision for the good life. And it sure seems that the best way to present the good life of the kingdom of God is the way of love. It just seems like that's, that's central to it. And, um, what other options do we have? Right. Like I, I had a, uh, right, had a yeah. fa- fascinating conversation. A, a Muslim friend, uh, has this female that he is a, a girl that he's dating and he's, and they're having like this, this tension because, uh, the different religious commitments and some of this kind of, uh, is, of Outside of my um, knowledge uh, base. And so uh, one is Sunni, one is Shia, and one has like five days, or five times to pray every day, and one wants to make the pilgrimage, and the other one's, well, three times a day, and maybe we just send some alms and we can send some money to support. And so he's like, well, how do you think I should go about doing that? And I was like, uh, bro, um, I, I feel like I'm not the right guy to ask, but we could talk about this if you want. But it just is really. Uh, beautiful gift that he invited me into this space to have a conversation about how you deal with uh, religious tension in Islam, which I don't know. It's just kind of fun. That
1: really really says, that says a lot about you as a friend because it, it, I mean when we share with each other and we open up our vulnerable places and our big questions and our struggles I mean, that's where friendship really is valuable. And we share that. It's it's cool that he shared that with you. Um, I mean, that's not unlike I mean, it's not it's apples and oranges in some ways, but it's not unlike trying to talk to friends who are working out a marriage or a dating relationship across Catholic Protestant lines.
0: Sure. Um, Yeah, definitely. You
1: know, religion, but significant differences. And how do you do that? And uh, yeah, yeah, those are. And so
0: it's very similar. Yeah, I tell all of them, whether it's Protestant, Catholics, Sunni, Shia, that if you're not Church of Christ, you're not going to heaven. So you're just wasting your time. <laughs> anyway, I'm yeah. kidding. I'm kidding. Yeah, uh, you are. John- but, but, <laughs> it, 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 With all
1: kidding aside, some of that has to do, I mean, the, the, the title of my book, Better Religion, is a, mm. is a play on words a little bit. Um, yeah. In one sense, the better of Better Religion just acknowledges that most religious people in the world think that their own religion is better than others. Yeah. The, you know, that that it's better than the alternatives. And I certainly do. I mean, what would it mean mm-hmm. to be to say that I'm a Christian if I don't think that Christ is uniquely sure. true and powerful and better mm-hmm. than the alternatives? Well, yeah. my Muslim friends feel that way about the Quran, And as I said, so in one way, that's what better religion means. But mm-hmm. in another sense, the title of the book is playing on the word better as kind of aspirational that all of all of us in our different traditions need to lean into our better angels, the better versions of our respective traditions, especially those aspects that promote empathy and compassion and humility and love.
0: And then we have something to build on for interreligious peace. Yeah, I, I love. There's one section where we're talking about this in the book where you, where you say, uh, therefore, the interreligious peacebuilding envisioned in these pages requires the, quote, better of our respective traditions while acknowledging and leveraging the inevitable disagreements over what, quote, quote, better even entails. It is within the seeming paradox, I argue, that interreligious peacebuilding becomes imaginable. And I think for some of us, we need this picture to help us imagine something that seems to be very blunt, like unrealistic, unimaginable. So I appreciate you helping put pen to paper to help us get a picture of what this can look like. And i um, deeply grateful for the book and grateful for your witness and what you're doing. So thank you so much.
1: Yeah, thank you. And I, I appreciate the time you've given to it. And, um, and I, I wish you well as to, as well.
0: Okay, well, I'm not going to say who I like better between you or your wife. You know, both of you have been on the podcast. Yeah, please don't. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm going to say Sarah anyway, so it doesn't matter. But, uh, <laughs> John, John, thank you. It has been an honor. Thank you for the time, sir. Thank you, too, Lou.